Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, thank you for yesterday, the induction. It was a great day. We've got double church this weekend, yesterday and today. If you're watching online or whatever yesterday, thank you for, for joining. And for everybody that, that served or just welcome people or serve tea, coffee, all of that kind of stuff. I'm not going to name people because I don't know your names, but I'm also not going to name you because I'll miss somebody out. But I just want to say thank you for yesterday. And thanks to the worship group for leading us, not just in song, but into God's presence today. It's quite easy to gather as God's church and to come into his presence together. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, uh, there were there were different people that I wanted to be like. One of them was a guy called Roger. He was one of my best friends in school. I didn't want, didn't want his name. Sorry if you're called Roger, but I didn't want his name, Roger. I felt that Wayne was only marginally above Roger in the cool names, but uh, not very far above it. I'm just going to add that. Very Essex name, by the way. But anyway, that's another story. I'll tell you about that in another sermon, maybe. But um, I wanted to be like Roger, because Roger was cool. He was just a really good-looking guy. I've shown photos of him to my wife. She goes, yeah, no, he is a good-looking guy. I wish you were a bit more like Roger as well. But no, I'm only joking. Roger was a really cool guy. He was one of those guys that any kind of sport he was good at. I won't take a genius to look at this toned physique to know that sport and me, other than armchair sport, don't really go hand in hand. But give him any shaped ball... And he just instantly knew what to do with it. And he was just really cool at that. Plus, when I was in secondary school, all the girls loved Roger. So I really wanted to be like Roger. The other person I wanted to be like, do you remember chips? Some of you have no idea. I don't mean chips that you eat with fish. California Highway Patrol. Do you remember that? Some of you are an age where you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, may God bless you that you're younger than the rest of us. But chips was one. And what I loved about chips, A, the Californian sunshine, but they, they, just these cool motorbikes. And these guys were just, they just oozed coolness. And I just wanted to be like them. But above all of them, the person I really wanted to be like, and this will age me, is Shaking Stevens. <laughs> What's so funny about that? I wanted to be like Shaking Stevens, not just because he was Welsh, but it was just something about him, the way he dressed. He was, he was the Welsh version of Elvis, as far as I was concerned. He was just, he oozed cool. The way he dressed, his hair, that rock and roll come teddy boy kind of thing, all of that, the way he sang. I just loved Shaking Stevens. And yes, I did the bop as well. And no, I'm not going to do that for you today. I just loved, and I wanted to be Shaking Stevens. And I don't know about you, maybe you grow up, there were people that you wanted to be like, maybe film stars or, or, or rock stars or people on the TV, or maybe friends and, and, and family members that you just thought, they're so, they're so great. I wish I was more like them. And maybe you're thinking, I've never wanted to be like anybody by myself. Let me ask you one question. Did you put a princess dress on when you were little? I know some men that have. <laughs> did you play cops and robbers when you were little? You know, did you do all of these things? And because we saw them and we wanted to be like them. Not necessarily what they said. We didn't read up about them. We didn't study them. But we wanted to be 
like them. It's why celebrities have so much power. It's why footballers have so much power. Because their actions are seen by the rest of us. Especially children and young people. And they want to emulate them. And that's why they don't realise the power that they have. Because we all have this thing within us that there are others that we want to be like. Last time we came to this sermon series, we looked at an introduction to the series that we've called Start as we mean to go on, as, as we've got this new journey, as I've come new to you, Gary's got a new role with you, we're starting as we mean to go on. And we talked about how the problem in our life is unhealthy, extreme busyness that manifests in hurry, unhealthy hurry, and how the world has created within us this unhealthy relationship with extreme busyness and hurry. We spoke about how the solution, the antidote to all of this is to have the trellis, the rule of life that runs throughout us. That vineyard illustration where the trellis, not always seen, but is just there holding the vines nice and straight. A way of life that keeps us connected to God at all times. Jesus had that trellis. This rule of life and in our lives we're to be with Jesus. To become like Jesus and do what Jesus would do if he were us. And you see, Jesus stayed connected to the Father because of this trellis. Because of this rule of life. And we need to follow that. We need to be like that. We need to copy that. We need to apprentice under Jesus. And you see, in Jesus' day, an apprentice... Uh, of a rabbi would just, that's what they would do. They would spend all their time with the rabbi and they would just want to be like them. They would watch how they did things. They would watch not just how they taught, but how they lived their life. And they would spend all their time studying uh, that uh, person. It's a bit like, you know, somebody who's really good at uh, impressions. They don't just read about a person, they study the person. They watch their mannerisms, their their little tells, the little way that they stand and move and speak, how they they position their mouth and and all of these things. And they they exaggerate that. But sometimes if we're watching them, we'll close our eyes, won't we? We That could be them. Because it's so like them. So what are the ways of Jesus? Well, some call them spiritual disciplines of Jesus. And certain Christian traditions have followed and still follow these these spiritual disciplines to the letter. Not from a legalistic point of view, I want to add, but from a deep recognition that they need these spiritual disciplines to live a life like Jesus. Which is to live a life in all its fullness. Now discipline in our modern world is a world we don't like, isn't it? We don't like the word discipline. Simply put, because we see it as legalistic, but also... Uh, we just don't like being told what to do, do we? It's not just children and young people that don't like being told what to do. None of us particularly like being told what to do either. But these spiritual disciplines are simply the habits of Jesus. The habits that he put in his life because he knew he needed them, this trellis to stay close to his father. And we would do well if we were to be like 
Jesus. If we were to watch how he lived and to put these disciplines, these habits, these, this way of life into our lives as well. And before we think this is simply another thing that I'm telling you we've got to do, think about the purpose of the trellis. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says, the point of a trellis isn't to make the the vines stand up straight in neat rows, but rather to attain a rich, deep glass of wine. It's to create space for the vine to grow and bear fruit. You see, friends, this trellis is not to get us looking good. It's not so that we live a good life. It's so that we produce rich, good fruit. That's the purpose of the trellis. So move away, friends, from this is rules and regulations. This is how we grow as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And this is how we bear much fruit. They are, as John Mark Comer says, how we open ourselves up to a power far beyond our own. And if we follow the ways of Jesus, these habits, these spiritual disciplines, we open ourselves up to a power far beyond our own. So this morning, we move on with the first of Jesus' practices, the spiritual disciplines, the habits. And it's this, it's silence and solitude. It's silence and solitude. In our modern world, the digital world has exacerbated our unhealthy relationship with extreme busyness, resulting in a life of hurry. I just want to say from the outset, this is not me being down against anything digital, especially as this service has been live-streamed, and I've got a microphone on, I've got a phone in my pocket, and this afternoon I'll watch telly. (laughs) I'm not against it. But the digital world has made our relationship with extreme busyness and hurry even worse. Can you remember a time when you only had three channels on the TV? Some of you think, I can remember when we didn't have a TV. Maybe you can only know the two channels. You know, now we, when I was growing up, I was telling somebody the other day, I was my dad's remote control. By that, it meant when he wanted to change the channel, it was Wayne, go and press the number three button, will you? Go and press the number two or the number one. You know, we, we, we didn't have as much. Now, now we have hundreds of channels, and how many of us say there's nothing to watch on TV? And there's like five, six, seven hundred channels. Can you remember the time when TV used to have a shutdown? Was it 11 or midnight, something like that? I've got a friend who works for BBC Wales, and, and when he started in BBC Wales, he used to speak as a shutdown, as the, the, the world, the globe was revolving. There'd be no TV until maybe, I don't know, 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. Some of you are thinking, what? No TV all night? What, what would you do? i tell you what we used to do. We used to sleep. That's what we did. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was great. Not so long ago, there was a time when you're watching the TV, if you wanted a cup of tea, or you wanted to do something else, or you needed to go to the loo, you had to wait if you're watching anything other than BBC, until there was a break. Or till that program was finished. Now, press a button and you pause TV. And I would say in our house, since we've had pause TV, like lots of us have, it's probably one of the worst things that's happened. 
I can't remember the last time we watched a program or a film without one of us saying, can you just pause that a moment? Just, just watch it from the start. to Don't we pause it because we want to say something else. We want to do something else. Here's one. thing: used to get home from school and you wouldn't speak to your mates until the following day. Wow. You never phoned them just to say hello or to tell them what you had for tea. There was no texting, so you couldn't text them, anything like that. No thumbs up or, 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 or anything like that. And you couldn't use the phone, because unless it was an emergency until after 6pm, your mother wouldn't let you use it. Yeah? Do you remember those days? Texting, we'd never heard about that. The time when you would send a letter to somebody, and you'd wait for a reply. Now, I appreciate with the post at the minute, some of us are waiting for a long time for replies. But you, that, that was how you communicated with the outside world. Now, I'm not saying emails and text and all of this is wrong. There's a huge benefit to our digital world. But the digital world has created so much noise. You know, when I was a kid and we went on a car journey, we didn't have a film on, on a smartphone or a tablet. We used to play hours and hours of I Spy. Or just to sit and say nothing. Wow. A two, three, four, five hour car journey with no screen. How on earth did my parents cope without checking one of us out the car window on the M4 corridor as we're going to Swansea? You know, over 60% of people admit to taking their phones with them when they go to the toilet. The reasons, apparently, they don't want to miss a work email or a text or a personal email or text. Some people say they want to check their social media or they simply play games because, well, why not? What else do you do when you're in the loo? I'll tell you what you do. You go to the toilet and then you wash your hands and you get out of there. That's what you do. The number of people who drop their phones down the toilet. Hands up if you... No, you don't need to put your hand on. It's okay. <laughs> But, what, but think about it. Well, lots of us do it. What has happened in our world that we can't go to the toilet for fear of missing a text or an email? How long are you in the toilet for? You know? The world's gone a little bit crazy, hasn't it? We're bombarded by noise and it can seem like the noise is getting louder. John McComas says this new normal of hurried dis- digital distraction is robbing us of the ability to be present. Present to God, to others, to ourselves. But in one sense, we're struggling with it because we're addicted to noise, addicted to busyness, and maybe we're fearful of silence. We see boredom as a negative thing. And yet the ability to be bored and do nothing is one of the great pleasures in life. So what is silence and solitude? Bear with me, we will get to the Bible in a minute. We're we're going to do some explanation that will help us. Silence, there there are two types of silence, inward and outward. The outward silence is obvious to us all. It's the idea of, of no noise. 
You know, that means no outward distractions, no TV, no phone, no tablet, no kids screaming, no, no traffic, no, no, your, your boss bombarding you with things, no, no noise at all. Many years ago, my wife and I, we had a touring caravan. It was in the wonderful days of BC, before children. It was great. And we, there was one day, we'd been preaching on a Sunday, and we were going to the Lake District, and we thought we'd stop in the Peak District, so we haven't got long the following day. So I'd been preaching in the morning, we finished church, we hooked the caravan up, drove to the Peak District. By the time we got there, I had this awful uh, migraine. And so we had some food, and I just went to bed. And we were on a really small site where there was nobody else there. And in the morning, I got up, and uh, my wife was still asleep, and so I made a cup of tea, and I got the dog, and I went outside, and I just sat outside, the, the sun was shining. I sat outside the caravan. All I could hear was a babbling brook. And I sat there for maybe 30, 60 minutes, just with a cup of tea, the dog sat by the side of me, and just nothing. It was wonderful. So wonderful... That what? I don't know. 17 years later, I can still vividly remember it. John Mark Comer talks about a similar experience where he was uh, doing some engagement, speaking engagements in Melbourne, in Australia. And because of jet lag, he got up very, very early. And he went for a run in a park. And he said there was nobody there. He just heard birds a stream. He said, as he was running, notice I was sitting, he was running. As he was running, he said his soul started to wake up. He said, God's presence isn't an idea in our heads, but a felt experience. When we experience, we calm the outward noise. Then and only then can we start to calm our inward noise. Inward noise is described as mental chatter that never shuts up. A bit like preachers, but it's, you know, it never stops talking. It's that noise in our head that sees us examining that bad conversation. It's our worry, our concerns, that thinking about something that may or may not happen, but has never happened yet. It's when you're lying in bed and your brain just will not switch off. Outward noise is relatively easy to control. Just turn off the phone. You can turn it off, you know. It's got a, did you know that? <laughs> it's got an off button. You can turn a phone off. Try it sometimes. It's wonderful. You turn off the TV. You, you go somewhere where it's just quiet. Inward noise is harder to control. But silence in terms of habits... Of Jesus, the spiritual disciplines is when you turn off both noises, the outward and the inward. Solitude is when you're alone with God and your own soul. Different from isolation, where people often run away, like those programs that Ben Fogel does on TV, where, where people just get away from the, all of the world and live in a forest somewhere all on their own. That's isolation. Solitude is when you're getting alone with God. Solitude is Psalm 23. When you allow God to to lead you beside the still and quiet waters, we allow him to refresh our souls, to restore, to recover our souls. Solitude is the lifeblood of our souls. It's what feeds and waters our soul. 
Psalm 23 is talking about solitude. It's where we're, we're safe and where we're, we're in God's presence and we feel his peace. The biblical word for peace is shalom. It means completeness. It means whole. Solitude is where we feel that, where we sense God's completeness, his wholeness. It's not loneliness, which a lot of people in society sadly do feel. Richard Foster wrote, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Solitude has an intentionality about it, where you choose to do it. It doesn't just happen. You have to diary. You have to make time for it, to be in solitude with God. In solitude, you intentionally open yourself up to God, not to get something out of God, an answer or a miracle, but just to be with him. As we were singing the worship songs and, and goodness of God, I, just had, I was reminded in my, in my mind and my spirit of a picture that God gave me many years ago. And do you remember as a kid, when you were on a beach and just running around with your children playing? And then you sit in the sunshine, maybe just with your dad. And as many of you know, I lost my, my dad died many years ago when I was 14. And the image I had in my mind was sitting on a beach when my dad was leaning against a wall. And I was just sitting, cutched Hugged, cuddled, cutched is a great Welsh word. Um, On my dad's lap. We weren't speaking to each other. We were just there in that moment. That's solitude. You're not not asking God for anything. You don't want a miracle. You're not reading your Bible. You're not even listening to a worship song. You're just being with God. That's solitude. Allowing your soul uh, to be with him. Not to get something out of him, but to be with him. Are you with me so far? Yeah? It's all groundwork to realise. But it's good to realise what silence and solitude is. To see why Jesus made it central to his life. So, so let's bring the Bible into this. What can we learn from Jesus when it comes to silence and solitude? I want us to think about two examples from Jesus' life. The second one in a moment would be the passage that Christine read to us from Mark at chapter 1. But before we get that, I want to go just before that to Jesus' baptism. In the Gospels in the New Testament, where we read about Jesus' baptism, there's an interesting order of events. So we read that Jesus was baptized. And in Matthew chapter 3, we read, as Jesus comes out of the water, there's an audible voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But the very next verse says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and then the tempter came to him. Now many of us will know that account. We've spoken, we've read that. But I want to notice two things about this account. Firstly, the first thing that Jesus does after his baptism is to go into the desert. Now, the word desert can be translated as desert, deserted place, uh, desolate place, solitary place, quiet place, wilderness. As John Mark Comer says, it doesn't necessarily mean sand and heat. But it means a place that Jesus went to, away from the world, to be alone with God. Jesus has been baptised. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the first thing he does is not crack on with all the work that's got to be done. The first thing he does is to get away to be with God, to be with his father. You can imagine people stood around thinking, is that it? 
He's the Messiah. What's he going to do? He, he's gone away. And he didn't just go away for, for 30 minutes. He went away for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a pattern for us to follow here. Can you see it? The minute Jesus has been baptized, he goes and spends time with his father. As opposed to cracking on with the ministry, the reason why he came. And the second thing I want to notice is the timing of when the devil comes and tries to pull Jesus off course. It's right at the end of his 40 days of fasting. And I've heard many sermons and read things and preached the sermons about how awful it is that the devil comes to Jesus right at the time he's most weak. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And we've got to be be careful because when we're weak, that's when the devil will come. And we've got to be really, really careful. But reading John Mark Comer's book, I've seen something different in it. What if we flip the script? So the desert is not seen as a place of weakness, but rather a place of strength. Think about it. Jesus is led by the Spirit into a desert place for 40 days and he spends that time in prayer and fasting, just him and his God, his Father. After all this time in silence and solitude with his Father, friends, Jesus wasn't at his weakest. Jesus was at his strongest. After all this time with God, he then had the strength to take on the devil and win. So you see, our time in silence and solitude is not simply a time to rest and to reset, but rather it's a time to recharge. Think about it. If you've got rechargeable batteries, their desert place, their place of silence and solitude is in the charger. They're not doing anything in the charger. But after the 16 hours or whatever it is, when you take them out of their charger, out of their desert place, are they at their strongest or are they at their weakest? They're at their strongest. They're at their strongest. You see, the devil didn't come at Jesus when he was weak. He came at him when he was strong. You know, come on, church. Allow this to sink in, will you? Time alone with God is not downtime, but powering up time. Are you with me? Time alone with God is not downtime. Jesus is 40 days and 40 nights of prayer and fasting. The Bible tells us if we want to see God move, we pray and we fast. There's power in fasting. And Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights doing that. He wasn't weak. That wasn't downtime. That was his powering up time. That was his time in the battery charger. So when the devil comes to him, we always think, wow, Jesus is weak. And that's when this powerful devil comes. Flip the script. Devil, you're a fool. You should have come to him 40 days ago. But you've come to him when he's at his strongest and he can go toe-to-toe with you and he's going to win. So when you and I have time in silence and solitude, it isn't wasted time, church. It's, 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 our, it's not downtime. It's our powering up time. It's whatever the devil is going to throw at us. Hold that in your mind. As we see Jesus living out silence and solitude in the place of then his work, if you like, his ministry, that passage we had in Mark. Think about it. It's been a really long day. He's been teaching in the synagogue, dealing with with a man who was possessed by an evil spirit. He then goes to Simon and Andrew's house, and and Simon's mother-in-law is not very well, so he heals her as well. And then just when they've eaten and she's served them, and he thinks, do you know what, I I could put a bit of Netflix on now and watch something. Hordes of people turn up. They want, to, they want to hear him teach. They want to be healed. More people turn up that are possessed by evil spirits and he's got to do all of this all over again. 
You could, you could be forgiven for thinking when Jesus goes to bed that night and the following day, it's a no alarm day. It's a pajama day. He's been utterly so busy the night before and now he's utterly, utterly exhausted. But what do we read? Before daybreak, he gets up and goes to a solitary place. He's given out. He's given out, he's given out. He doesn't think, you know what, I'm just going to lie in bed. I can have a leisurely breakfast, I may have a brunch. I may chill out, I may do some stuff with my friends. He gets up before daybreak and goes off to be with his father. Not downtime, but powering up time. He's given out, he's given all, the disciples don't get it. They think Jesus is like the Duracell bunny. He can just keep giving and giving and giving and giving. But Jesus knows to know what his father is telling him to do or what his father is telling him not to do to receive the power. He's got to go and be with him. So he may have wanted to do other things, but he's got to get up early and go and be with his father because he needs to power up. And the other interesting thing about all of this is John McCormick says, notice when that comes. It's just after he spent 40 days and 40 nights powering up. One day of giving out, and he needs to power up again. Are you getting this? Yeah, one day of, you know, he's had 40 days and 40 nights. It's like us. We go to a lovely retreat or a Christian conference. That'll get us going for the next 12 months. Every day, Jesus gets up, goes to a solitary place, spends time in silence and solitude with his father, because he needs to power up. In Matthew 11, and we looked at, the, you know, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And in the message translation where it talks about, come with me, get away with me. Watch how I do it. Friends, this is how Jesus did it. Jesus was busy. Jesus had lots of call on his time. But this is how he did it. Watch how I do it. Learn my unforced rhythms of grace. Come away with me. You'll recover your soul. So we need to follow this example. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus would do if he was us. It's about following what he does. And, and Jesus knew. He, 40, I find it staggering. 40 days and 40 nights of prayer and fasting. One day of giving out and giving out and he needs to go back to the Father. We need to have that rhythm in our life. Why is it so important when we don't spend time with God in silence and solitude? Then we become easy prey for the tempter. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You know, when we don't spend time, if we don't spend time in prayer, if we don't spend time in fasting, if we don't spend time in silence and solitude, we will be weak. But when we spend that time, the tempter will come, but we've powered up, church. We've got more of God's power within us. But when we don't, we just further our sense of distance from God and our souls. Can I just say, this isn't mindfulness. This isn't yoga. This isn't any of the other practices that have become on trend in the world, which, by the way, many are not based on the things of God, but on other religions, some of which go directly against God. That's another sermon for another day. This is powerfully and wonderfully spending time with Jesus and choosing to do it because we know we need it. Henry Nouwen said, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. 
gulp. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Very true and very blunt. Think about it. Relationships suffer if we don't make time for them. Sometimes my wife and I will be talking and the kids are around. We might be talking about planning to go out for a meal together. Just the two of us. And the kids will often say, oh, that sounds nice. Can we come? No, you can't. Because we need time together. We need time to invest in our relationship. Yes, we love our children, even more so when they're both in bed. But we love, you know, we just love them to bits. We would do anything for them. And we need to work at that relationship with our kids. But we also need to work at our relationship as a married couple. Because if we don't work at our relationship as a married couple, our relationship with our kids will suffer. And if we don't work at our relationship with God, everything else in our life is going to struggle and suffer. And here's the takeaway. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this. If Jesus needed to do it, you need to do it. Simple as. If the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, the Messiah, if God incarnate needed to spend time in silence and solitude with his Father, then if you think you don't need it, how are you so arrogant? If Jesus needed to do it, we definitely need to do it. Now, some of you are hurried to a dangerous level and are convinced yourself that you're too busy to take time with God. I mean proper time. Maybe if we gave silence and solitude to God, if we gave it airtime in our lives, we wouldn't be so unhealthily busy because we'd have the souls to know what to say no to. I also think, and this is going to be hard to hear, I think, and I'm saying it to myself as well, for some of us it's a case of can't stop, won't stop. And by that, I mean it's more on the side of won't stop. Our hurry has become our drug of choice. But think about it. When we're so hurried that we let go of our time with God, but we won't let go of our time at the gym or our social life, haven't we got things a little bit skewed? We have. I'm pointing that at myself as well. Jesus could not have spent time in silence and solitude because all of these people came looking for him. They all wanted something from him. Yet he prioritized time with God in silence and solitude over a lying after a busy day. Over doing lots of good things, over that leisurely breakfast, because he knew that time in silence and solitude with his father was as important as breathing. Think about it. If, If we as human beings had to intentionally tell ourselves to breathe by stopping every day for a moment in time, would we be too busy not to do it? Of course not, because we'd die. Friends, it's exactly the same. Time with God in silence and solitude is as important as breathing. Because breathing feeds our bodies physically. Time in silence and solitude with God breathes us spiritually. Bringing this to a close, because the worship group, just come back up and when you're ready, just start playing quietly, that's great. I think some of us are dying because we're not willing to practice silence 
and solitude. It's the most important of all of Jesus' practices, all of his habits, and it's the hardest one to do. And I'm not here telling you this is great because I do this every day because I'd be lying to you. Because I find it difficult as well. I read a book on silence and solitude, not by John McComer, by somebody else. And, and, and she said, just start with three minutes. Turn your phone off. Just start with three minutes. Go to the toilet, but don't take your phone. <laughs> just have three minutes. Not, not with your Bible, not with a list that you want to bring to God in prayer, but just three minutes silence. And she says, when we start doing this practice, it'll be a bit weird because there'll be lots of other things running into our head. That's okay. That's okay. But over time, as we start doing this practice, it'll become more natural and it'll feed our souls. Your place of silence and solitude might be found on a, work, on a walk. It might even be your journey to work, where if you're on the tube or the train, you put headphones in but no music on them, so you block out the noise. Or you might be in a car, you don't put the radio on, it's just nothing. It might even be found when you're in the bath. It doesn't matter how long you do it for. John Mark Comer says sometimes you can, you can find an hour every day to do it. But depending on what season of life you're in, maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's different on the weekend to what it is in the week. But intentionally choose to what works for you. Find moments every day where you can just stop, breathe in and breathe out your day. To decompress, to come before your Father. Many of us know the Psalm 46 verse 10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. The message paraphrase of this verse says, Step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. That was the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, Jesus shows us how to do it. So friends, where in your life do you need to step out of the traffic? Not forever, for a moment in time. To just allow your soul to come before God. And you know, don't beat yourself up about it. That's when it becomes legalistic and rules and regulations. Some days you'll do it all right and other days you won't. That's okay, God understands. But in Jesus, fully human and fully divine, fully human, If Jesus had to do it, then we need to do it. You may have seasons in your life where you can go away for a whole day. Sometimes my wife periodically says to me, you need to get away from us. Just go for a walk, for your day off. Just just go on your own. I can see you're carrying things and you need to breathe and let it go. Sometimes she says, you need a little bit longer, so book a retreat center, go away for two nights. So I want to say to you, if you're, if you're here as a, as, a, um, as a husband and wife, be kind to each other. Give each other time of what you might need. You'll be different. Say, I'll take, I'll take the kids, you just, 
you just go for, for an hour. If you haven't got children, if they've grown up, just, again, be kind to each other. Because we're all different. I need it differently in a different way to what my wife needs it. But work together to find those moments. If you, if you live on your own, have those moments where the telly is turned off, where the magazine, the paper, the book is put down. Where you don't answer the phone. Where you just breathe. Have that silence and solitude before God. And friends, if we do this individually, can you imagine the difference it would make to God's church if collectively we're doing this? Can you imagine the witness would be in our world, in our families, in our workplaces, amongst the people we lead, if we're modeling silence and solitude? Do you know what? Hurry is killing the souls of this world. As God's church, let's be the ones that bring the healing and show the healing by modeling what it is to spend time in silence and solitude with God. We're going to sing a song of response. It's the song called The Stand. And it says, you stood before creation, eternity in your hand. You spoke the earth into motion. My soul, my soul now to stand. So what could I say? What could I do but offer this heart, oh God, completely, unequivocally, nothing else in the way. Offer this heart, oh God, to you. And friends, I want us to really respond to this. I I want us to sit down. As we're singing this song. And if you know in your heart that you need to do this, that you need to say anew and afresh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm going to, I need to recover my soul. I want to offer my heart, my soul completely, completely to you. I just want to encourage you to stand then as we're singing. No judgments here. But if I'm, if I know I struggle with silence and solitude. I struggle in my daily life of fully always giving my heart completely to God. And I want to give him more of me. I want to give him everything. If I'm struggling with that, not because I'm anything special, but in a room of, I don't know, 150 or so people, I know I'm probably not the only one. So if you want to give your heart completely to God, if you want to ask him to help you with this silence and solitude, uh, spiritual discipline, this habit, this way of life, just, just stand before him as symbolically you're saying, God, you've got everything. You've got my own.